But just real quick, I want to look at those words. One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. A lot of people say, you know, why can't God stop evil? Well, God can and will. But right now we have a free will to choose him. And the second half is still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose him now. For us to choose him, that's where the treasure is. To be forced to, everybody will be forced to him in the end. All right, Galatians chapter 5. Let's open in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you and to show love back in return for your love for us. And we ask you to just to give us a wonderful time as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be looking at Galatians 5, 22 and 23 again. We're going to take more than just three words. <laughs> but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Last week we talked about fruit. The only way to produce fruit is to be attached to the vine. And we spent the whole time last week talking about that, so we're not going to talk about it this week. And we compared that to the week before, which is the works of the flesh. What we do is works. What we express for God is fruit. And this is where it's really powerful, and this is where Christianity is very strong, is we can do nothing for him in our own, in our own flesh. It is all the work of the Spirit through us. He crucifies our flesh according to Galatians 2.20, and then he works through us and produces fruit. So we're going to look at this fruit and see what uh, we can bring out of those. The first one it talks about, and notice that it is fruit. It's not fruit, so this is what the Spirit produces. And the first one is love. The word there is agape, and we've talked about agape before. The usual definition of agape that you'll hear most people tell you is it's unconditional love or that it's God's love, both of which are true. But we brought out that it is objective love. And we've talked about that before, and we're going to talk about it again because it is important to understand that God's love is objective. It doesn't matter what we do or don't do, it's not going to change. If it was subjective love, the subjective love is what we have for people most of the time. If somebody's treating us good, we'll love them. If they're treating us bad, it's very hard to love them, isn't it? That's subjective love. God's love is objective. He chooses to love us. And because he's chosen to love us, the only way he will not love us is if he chooses not to love us, and our God doesn't change. Now, when we get married, it should be through objective love that we've chosen to love somebody. When I do marriage counseling or I advise people if they're getting ready to get married, I'll ask, my first question to them was very often, why do you love each other? And you, if you've never thought about that question, you know, it's a tough question to think of. Because usually they'll come back, well, uh, she looks pretty or he looks pretty. You know? uh, so that means if they're in an accident, after you get married and the next day they get in an accident and they're disfigured, you're not going to love them anymore. And while they're in the throes of all that emotional love, that, that shocks them like, well, I don't think that's what I mean, but that's what they said. You know, and the same thing, well, they got a good personality. So again, you go down the road a little while, they get sick and they lose their personality, you're not going to love them anymore. You know, subjective love says, well, of course I'm not. I don't, I don't, what I wanted there isn't there, I'm not going to love them anymore. True love says, I've chosen to love them. Very important that we understand God's love. And when he tells us to love one another in the church, 
He wants us to love each other objectively. <laughs> Choose to love so that when, when the sinners sin, and we've always talked about it, sinners sin, <laughs> sinners misbehave, they treat us bad. Even when we're Christians, we're still sinners. We treat each other bad often. We say things that we don't mean to say, or sometimes even say things we mean to say. And God says we're to love each other anyway. Godly love is not easy, and yet it is easy. You know, if I really choose to love somebody, and I realize that it's my choice to love them, it is easy. It's still hard to do, but it is easy because I've chosen to do it. And it's very important that we understand that we take this subjectiveness out of love. Because usually in America, when we hear the word love, we think subjective love. They're nice to me, I love them. You know, they're, they're really nice to me, they're good to be around, they're friendly, I, I, I can hang around with them, no problem. So God's saying, love your enemies. Do good to those who spitefully use you. That's true love, I choose to love. Easy yet hard. Everything God asks us to do is easy because it is something that he does through us. If we did it ourselves, very tough to do. Very tough to do, but we start with love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Hopefully you show love to people. If not, think of a Christian who shows you love even when you don't deserve it. Love is hard. Love is very hard sometimes to do. Does that mean we're always going to say kind things to one another when they need to be taught something or shown that they're headed the wrong way? No, sometimes love will be very hard on people saying, you're getting ready to go over the cliff, don't go this way any further. Uh, when we're kids go running into the middle of the, the, the freeway that was by our house, we're not going to just let them, oh, I love my kid, I'm just going to let them go do that. Our love says, no, get back here now, even if you have to physically restrain them because there's a car coming. You know, so sometimes love expresses things that, are, that is going to maybe make us mad at the time. But it always has to be expressed with love. I care for you, therefore I'm going to share this with you. I know a lot of Christians who says, well, love says I'm going to be able to really, you know, instruct these people, and all they ever do is instruct people. And there's very little love behind it. It's not, you know, and, and when you think about this, we've talked about this, the law kills. To hammer somebody with the law all the time will just kill, will kill. If you want to kill a relationship with a spouse, criticize them all the time. You know, don't say anything good to them and you know, you're pretty sure to kill the relationship very quickly. And this is one of the things we did. We listened to this guy who gave very good messages and he was very humorous. And he kept, he told all the women to be careful with the men, they only have half a brain. <laughs> Which is pretty much true because it's studies show men here with half a brain. You know, they don't connect both sides. And, but he was making a point that men don't hear the same way women do. That, you know, men are in competition and they're always in competition and women are, are nurturers usually. And, and he goes, so when you're talking to your men, just remember that he's only has a half a brain and he really is not being stupid, he just has half a brain. You know, but love tells you how do you communicate? How do you communicate with somebody? And love will say, some people respond very well to being challenged. Some people, if you say anything to them, they fall apart. And you need to know, you need to learn, you need to, need to learn to discern and say, how does this need to be handled? Do I pray for this person? And just pray for them. And I'm going to tell you, if you're going to, if you're going to criticize somebody and try to instruct them, pray first and pray long. 
and make sure your heart's in the right place before you even do it. And then before you do it, pray again and ask God, should I? <laughs> and then if he says yes, go ahead and with all that prayer that covers it because that's part of love. You know, there's so many things that you want to be careful of because the law kills, grace wins. God's grace, you realize that the only way to heaven is the God's grace? The only way to get rewarded in heaven when we stand before Jesus is because of his grace? My works don't do anything. When I do something, my flesh does something, God says, okay, it was, it was fine. You might even have got some good out of it. I mean, I've seen Bible teachers and speakers that, very good speakers, very knowledgeable in the word, and you can learn something from them. But you didn't sense the Holy Spirit talking through them. You didn't sense God. A lot of good facts. The Bible, the word of God does not return void. <laughs> and yet you're going, nothing from God out of this person. Great, great message. People even might have grown. Maybe even somebody got saved. And his wood burns up in front of Jesus. And then other times people have a spirit. And when you're with somebody speaking through the spirit, you know it. If you're the one speaking with the spirit, you know it. Because it's no longer you. And God says, here's your reward. I worked through you and gave you the reward. And that's all love is going to do. Love is going to reach out, draw people. Look at the way Jesus talked to the disciples most of the time. He just loved them. You know, they wouldn't let the children in. He goes, forbid not the children to come unto me. He didn't go, why are you guys being so stupid? You know, I want the children here, and why are you being, you know, you know. And most of us probably would have been very harsh. You know, I want these kids over here. Get out of here. And he's just saying, no, let them come. Went to the woman at the well, very, very lovingly talks to her. Really shouldn't have been because he was a man. She was a woman. Shouldn't have been together in one place by themselves. She was a Samaritan. He was a, he was a Jew. The Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. You know, she had a bad reputation in the town, and Jesus even knew that because when she started to tell him she didn't have a husband, she goes, well, you've got, you know, you've got five, and the one you're living with isn't your husband. He knew, he knew her reputation, and yet here he was talking with her, being kind to her. Now, the religious people who piled on to them, he wasn't so nice to them. But he also had to shock them and say, you guys aren't as, you guys aren't as good as you think you are. Have you ever been in a place where we've walked with God for so long that somehow you start to think you're good? You know, probably all of us have been there at some point somewhere in our life where all of a sudden we think we're, we're, we're pretty good. We're better than most of the people we know. Or, you know, I, I'm not stealing, lying, you know, you know, going out around town or doing drugs at this time. I'm very good. God does a wonderful way of saying, okay, we'll show you how good you're not. And it's so important for us to understand. All our righteousness is filthy rags, and God's saying, it's got to be me. We need to be crucified. We need to be out of the way. And we look in Romans, and Paul says, hey, I do all the things I don't want to do, and don't do the things I want to do. We're all that way also, aren't we? How many times have you known that you're supposed to talk to somebody, and you just didn't do it? Knew you were supposed to talk to them, but just didn't do it because you were afraid, too many people around, whatever it might be. And, or you knew you were supposed to go someplace and didn't. Or you knew you were supposed to be in the Word of God and didn't. You know, knew you were supposed to go to church and didn't. Whatever it might be, God will show us all the things that we, want, that we know we should do and don't do. Because he wants us lovingly to know that we need to be in his spirit, walking in his spirit. 
and not in our flesh. Our flesh will produce nothing but darkness and sin. Then it says the second one is, is joy. Oh, joy, that is such a wonderful thing. It's not happy. Joy is so much deeper than happiness. You can have joy when everything's going wrong around you. Even when you're questioning, okay, God, uh, what, what is going around? You know, have you ever been in a place where you say, God, I know you say everything isn't going to work for my good, but uh, how is this doing to be for my good? I've been there. I've been there a couple of times. God, uh, you say everything's for my good. Uh, for good. Uh, I don't see any way that this can be for my good. Give us a couple months, years, look back, and you can usually see some good out of it. But joy, joy is that idea of, well, it says it's caused by reason. It's caused by something external, and it's caused by God. When does the world normally get joyful? Oh, maybe the, the birth of a child brings joy. Birth of a grandchild. You know, anything that is pleasant going on, when you have that joy, God gives us joy. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. I can be joyful no matter what is happening in my life. And note, I didn't say happy. If you're happy that something bad's happening to you, you've got some problems. Okay, but I can be joyful. Okay, God, you've got a reason for this. And the reason we can be joyful is we know that God has reason. My favorite verse is, for all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. And when I go through tough things, that's the, photo, that's the verse I quote to myself. Okay, God, I, you know, and so oftentimes I'll tell them, I go, I don't understand this, but you say it's for good. And you don't lie, so I know it's for good, so I'm going to be okay and, and know that you're going to show me how it's for good joy. Why could we be joyful? We have the sovereign king of the universe who's going to make his will come true. He is not going to let us go suffer beyond what we're able with the spirit. He's going to give us grace to go through whatever we're going to go through. I've shared with people many times, I'm going, I, I really hope that I can stand up for God no matter what. As long as I'm crucified in the flesh and living in Christ, I can go through anything I have to go through. I, will, I can be a martyr for Christ as long as I've got my flesh crucified. But we need to be careful. I've heard people, well, I can, I can die for Christ. I'm ready to die for Christ. I'm going, well, we'll see when the gun's pointed at you whether your flesh is going to hold up your, your boast. If you're crucified in Christ, yes, you're going to have the right answer. You're going to be the disciple, the martyrs that go forward and say, I'm ready because God is with me. Very important joy, that confidence of who God is. The next one he gives us is peace. Peace. I love the Greek definition for peace. I'm going to read it because otherwise I'll get it wrong. The definition is the state of a soul assured of salvation through Christ and so fearing nothing from God and content with his earthly lot, whatever that is. Peace. Ultimately being content with whatever we have. Paul said, I've learned to be content in much and in little. Why? Because he understood he was a pilgrim on his way to heaven. So when he had a lot on this earth, that was great. If he had nothing on this earth, he was great because everything was in heaven. 
we need to have that peace. When we are content with where we're on with God, we're content with our salvation, we're content with Jesus, we can be at peace. And peace and joy go really hand in hand. You're not going to have joy if you're not at peace, and if you don't, if you don't have peace, you're not going to have joy. They really go hand in hand, which is why they're called the fruit of the Spirit. You pretty much have to have both. Because, again, we're content. God is in control. I love the idea that God is in control. The more we trust God and that he's in control, the more peaceful we are going to be. When all hell breaks loose around us and we look around and we know that God's in control, we can walk through it. Because he is the master of the storms. Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. He's sleeping in the middle of the storm. And we always make fun of the, the disciples, and Jesus did chastise them, yo, you of little faith. But you've got to remember, uh, many of those disciples were fishermen. <laughs> when they said, Lord, we're perishing, it wasn't a joke. <laughs> okay, These were fishermen. They knew that guys lost their boats in this kind of a storm when the water's coming in and you can't bail the water out fast enough. They knew that the boat was going down. And when Jesus chastised them, they probably looked at him and going, okay, you know. And then he spoke, and the storm died. The storm died, because he is in control of all the storms. We need to understand, if we're doing what Jesus has told us to do, then nothing's going to stop us from getting there. Nothing. Financial, weather. You, know, we, you listen and read stories about missionaries, and it's amazing the things that God has done for many of these missionaries to get them where they're supposed to go. I, I love this story about these three missionaries, medical missionaries, that went up this mountainside in the middle of a foggy day at night, got to, this, got to the village, delivered all their materials, and then they go, well, how'd you get here? And they go, we came up the road, and they go, that's impossible. And they go, why? They go, the road's been washed out for, for two weeks. <laughs> and they started back down, and sure enough, their 20-foot spot of the road washed out. <laughs> God can do whatever he wants to do. Now, if they had seen that washed out, they probably wouldn't have had enough faith to drive over it like they did, but God can do this stuff, the peace, the joy, part of our fruit. Then it tells us that we're to have long-suffering. That's a word we probably don't like, long-suffering, self-restraint. And a lot of pastors will emphasize the, the long part. <laughs> How easy is it for us to get frustrated with somebody because they keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again? And you talk to them, you challenge them not to do it. If you can remember teenagers, teenagers are real good about challenging your long suffering. You, know, you tell them not to do something and they keep doing it. You tell them not to do it, they keep doing it. God says we're given long suffering as one of the fruits one of the fruit of the Spirit. That patience that goes, I'm going to just keep going. I'm just going to keep going forward. I'm going to keep ministering to this person, even though they, they must be insane because they keep doing the same thing over and over again. But I'm going to keep loving them. I'm going to keep reaching out to them. That's amazing how sometimes, just about the time you're ready to quit doing allowing it to happen anymore, all of a sudden God moves. I know a pastor who was door knocking, he went to this, went to this house, the guy slammed the door in his face. <laughs> a couple months later, he, he went to the house, 
The guy in the middle of winter threw a bucket of water on him. Uh, you know, next time he cursed at him and, and spit at him. Then he goes, he was finally ready to give up on this house, but he decided to go one more time. And even before he got to the door, the guy pulled the door open and said, I've been waiting for you. Long suffering. Long suffering. Would any of us gone to him, you know, maybe just having the door slammed in our face, we might have gone up to him again. <laughs> having a bucket of water poured over our head in the middle of winter in a cold place where snow and ice was around, we might say, I'm never going to this house again. And yet he kept with long suffering going forward. <laughs> if you've ever taught a Sunday school and you get some, some student who just won't stop fidgeting or playing around, and you're going, God, I, you know, this, this, this person or child is a real challenge. And you just keep going. You keep praying for them. You keep loving. Everything in your being is like when they come to the door, you just want to say, go back home. I don't want you to be here. And then one day, they respond. Long-suffering. Long-suffering. You instruct somebody over and over and over again. They keep making the same mistake. And I can tell you, it breaks your heart when you watch them make the same mistake over and over again. And then one day, they respond. One day. So long-suffering is something that's important for us to look at. The next one that we look at is gentleness. Gentleness, gentleness is that moral goodness. I like the definition in Greek. It's mellow, not harsh. Uh, it's not harshness, steer. It's sweet gentleness. If you're going to criticize, you know, give somebody correction, instruction, it needs to be with gentleness. It has to be with gentleness, that mellow sweetness of it. It says, this is not, you're not going the right way, but we need to change. The broken heart behind it. It's just like when I've told the story about the two preachers trying to get a job in a church. Both of them preach on hell. One got chosen, one got didn't, and one who's really harsh and telling everybody they're headed to hell. But well, why wasn't I chosen? He goes, well, when he spoke about it, it made it sound like he didn't want people to go to hell. When it, you spoke, it sounded like you wanted them to go to hell. Harsh, strong, destructive, as opposed to you don't want to go there. And that's what I've said. We as Christians should have a heart that we don't want to see anybody to go to hell. If we understood how awful hell is, we would be with a gentleness of going to people and saying, no, you don't want to be there. Even an enemy. If we truly understood the awfulness of hell, we wouldn't want our worst enemy to go there because it's, it is so harsh. And this is where we are as Christians. Do we love somebody enough to say, I don't want you to go to hell? It should motivate us. Hell. The place where there is no love, nothing good about from God is in hell. Nothing but conviction, nothing about eating conscience. Have you ever had your conscience bother you for anything? In hell, they're going to spend eternity with their conscience bothering them with no relief. No relief. Possible. No confession of their sin to get it off, off, their, off their mind. Just a constancy of the worm chewing on them and convicting them. And then the, well, we would say physical pain, but whatever spiritual pain it matches to, the burning and the, and the destruction. Hell is a terrible place. Our gentleness should show forth to people. 
mellow kindness. People should want to be around us. Have you ever been around a Christian you didn't want to be around? Because they're always criticizing. You're not doing this. You're not doing this. You're, you know, you're, you're not this. You're not that. You're, you're not following this rule. You're not following that rule. And you're always feeling picked on. Hopefully none of us have been that way. But we've got to be careful. Nobody's going to want to come to a God that they see somebody, all they see from them is the pick, 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 pick. They want somebody that's going to show them love and kindness. Sometimes that means you do say, well, you know, you really shouldn't be speaking that way or you shouldn't be doing this. But it needs to be in gentleness, kindness. Because that's how God works with us. You know, when he calls us to be saved, he doesn't go on and say, get your life cleaned up and then come back to me. He says, come to me. I will crucify your flesh and I will make you righteous by living out of you. It's a wonderful plan. It's too bad not everybody understands it. It's amazing to me when I'll talk to somebody and I'm going, you know, and they'll say, well, I'm a Christian. I go, what does that mean? Well, you know, in the 70s, you used to hear, and before you used to hear, well, I'm an American, so I'm obviously a Christian. You don't hear that hardly out anymore. When they tell you they're a Christian, it's usually, well, I do good things. I, I do more good than bad. And I go, what does that have to do with anything? It's all about Jesus. All about Jesus, and he gives us that gentleness. God says, come to me, you that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, take my yoke, it's easy. If you're living in Christianity that's hard to live, you're not really living Christianity. Jesus wants to take your hard yoke, and he's going to give you the easy yoke. He's going to say, let me just get rid of your flesh, and we'll give you my spirit, and you'll be able to walk, and I'll carry the burden. Matter of fact, he's already carried the burden. He carried the burden to the cross and let it be crucified on the cross so that he could give us his light burden saying, here, I just want to live through you. I want to live through you. Gentleness. God deals with people gently. There will come a time when he's not gentle. After they die and they stand before him in the white throne judgment, there's no gentleness there. The white throne judgment, he's going to say, what did you do with my son? And he's already going to know the answer because you're not standing in front of the white throne judgment clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You're clothed in your own righteousness if you're at the white throne judgment. And he says, depart. I never knew you. No matter how good or how bad you were, know Jesus. Gone. And we've talked about this. He says, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And you look at their list. It's a great list. We healed people. We, we gave people food and drink in your name. We did all these different things. We gave them water. We gave them food. We visited them in the hospital. We even did it in your name. They didn't know Jesus. They said, depart. Now, the Christians were kind of more on that side. They go, go, God, when did we do all this stuff? He says, you did it to anyone. You've done it to me. But it was because of him. Him. Done in gentleness. We never do things because we're looking for a reward because that's our flesh trying to get rewarded. We let him work through us and he's going to give us the reward. The amazing thing when we get to heaven is all the things we're going to be rewarded for that we never even knew we did. And 
This pastor's convention was one of those things where he says, pastors, you never know what you're doing for people. You know, I agree with that statement. I always have. Even as a teacher, I never knew what I was doing. And sometimes people would come up to me years later when I would see them and go, you spoke this, or you did this, or you did, you know. And it's like, okay, if you say so. <laughs> yeah. The little things that we're going to be rewarded for that we never even knew we've done. The little kindness we showed somebody. The little things we do for somebody. Not because I was trying to get rewards or anything, but just because, just because. God, I felt God leading me to do it and working in gentleness. Being kind to them. Looking for just that lightweight activity. The next thing it says is goodness. And this goodness is kind of a, a stronger word than we think of. It's uprightness of heart. Or the word I really, definition I really like for this is intrinsic goodness. The only problem is we know that we don't have any intrinsic goodness. <laughs> so any goodness that is truly intrinsic is going to be the Holy Spirit working through us, the Holy God working through us. And we all know people who know God and they're just, they just seem to do good. And they just want to help. And I've met a number of people like that. They're just, they love God so much, they just want to reach out and show his love to people. And they, and they do good. And we know that there's no good in man, no good in the flesh. This fruit of the Spirit, goodness, that intrinsic goodness that comes out. The sweetness that we have with certain people. And you just feel God pouring out of them most of the time. Wouldn't it be nice if we could always have that? Always have his goodness coming out, always having his love, always having his joy. When we're not there, somehow we've detached ourselves from Christ. You know, we, we cut ourselves off from the root a little bit, and we're not getting the, the fruit of the Spirit. And we talked about that last week. We detach ourselves and we die. Never, never seen a plant that kept giving fruit when, it, when you cut it from, away from the root. You know, just doesn't happen. You cut that vine off, it dies. <laughs> it doesn't keep growing. It won't produce any fruit. And this is the way we are, we are in our spirit. The next one we look at is faith. Faith. Most people look at faith as a very negative thing, especially the world. They look, oh, you just, you just have faith that something's true. You know, and what they mean by that is, you've just turned off your brain and you're just jumping off a cliff and saying, you know, I believe God and jumping off a cliff. That is not the biblical definition of faith. Faith is an absolute conviction in the truth of something, even though you may not have evidence to de determine it. And I've shared with you, one of, the, one of the things that faith is, every one of us has sat down in chairs, and we have a belief that usually, if we're going to sit down, we have a belief that that chair is going to hold us. And I have been big enough that I have an absolute no faith in most of the chairs that you have by caterers. Those little white things that are, look like they can only hold about three pounds in the first place. I don't sit in those. <laughs> Why? I had faith in them one time. <laughs> and it crashed. <laughs> and I go, okay, maybe that was a weak chair and I sat in another one, it crashed. Guess what? <laughs> I have no faith in those chairs anymore. 
They may have reinforced them and made them better, but I look at that chair and I say, no good. <laughs> I am not sitting in that chair. It's not, I don't believe it's gonna hold me. I have no faith in that chair. Why? Because all the evidence that, I may, that I've lived through says it doesn't work. You know, some people get that way with certain types of vehicles. They got, you know, I bought this car and it didn't work. You know, next time, I, you know, the third car I bought, I bought the same car, it didn't work for me. Well, you think they're ever going to buy another one of those cars? No, they're going to say that company, that car, <laughs> no good. Faith isn't just a blind faith that we jump, jump off a cliff over. It is confident assurance that it is true. Confident. I am absolutely confidently sure by in faith that this world was created by God in seven days. He said it. It fits the evidence of science when you open up your science and say, Bible science agreement. <laughs> I open up evolution's truths and arguments. I'm saying, uh, you know, okay, real evidence. Hmm, they don't mesh. You know, it's absolutely amazing to me that evolutionists believe that life spontaneously degenerates. And yet, as a law in science, life does not spontaneously generate. It's proven. It's a law. It doesn't happen. And yet, to be an evolutionist, you have to believe that at some point in our history of our world, the law of science that says life does not spontaneously generate was broken. Makes no sense. But it's the only way they can make sense out of it. And you know, when you start out that no life could even begin, and then you look at other laws of science and say, well, evolution violates those. As a scientist, I'm saying, boy, they have an awful lot of blind faith. I can't have that much faith because it doesn't fit the evidence. I cannot be, con be convicted of the truth. Our faith in Christ is not a blind faith. We have evidence when we look at it of creation. We have evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we talked about that on Easter. You know, how in a case of law, we could prove that Jesus rose from the dead by the facts. You know, 500 witnesses that saw Jesus after he was resurrected. You know, can you imagine how long a court case would go with 500 witnesses? You know, even if they limited them five minutes, you'd have a long case. Okay, we're going to present 500 witnesses that saw this guy after he was supposedly dead. You know, you'd have a long case. Our evidence is so strong. Can we absolutely 100% prove anything about Christianity? No. But am I having enough confidence that I'll sit down in that chair and say, I totally believe that this chair is going to hold me up? Absolutely. Because there's enough evidence there that says, okay, I can't fill in all the gaps, but man, it sure fits all the evidence there that I can, that I can find. You know, and it's wonderful to, to see that. Remember we showed the movie, for those who are there, God's not dead. You know, the kid showing all the different evidences. And, you know, and then of course in the movie, he convinced all of his classmates. And I wish they would have let some of the classmates sit down on the movie because it wasn't quite you know, that strong. But of course, it's a movie. You've got to have an overwhelming answer. But because you can't absolutely prove any of this, but we can prove it well enough to be able to have confidence and faith in it and to be able to stand on it. Faith, God's faith, that absolute assurance. 
The other one, the next one is meekness. Now meekness is one of those words that people don't truly understand. And really it is an attitude of the mind and it has to do with, well, let me read the definition. It's a passive activity, meekness is passive. It's who we are, not what we do. It's a core value. Okay, and it is not striking out meekness. Meekness is that idea of I am somebody who is going to be kind. I am somebody who's not striking out, not going to let things rise up. Now, humility tends to be more active. <laughs> you know, I am choosing to do something is what humility or not do something, depending on whether, and I'm going to be humble. Meekness is very much like humility, but it's something that just is. It is who you are. It is when you find out that somebody has been attacking you behind your back, do you go out and you go try to find them and straighten it out? Or do you just say, I'm going to let God deal with it? You know, and we've talked over and over, you know, God is our defense. You know, when you let God defend you, it's the most wonderful thing. And God is kind of wonderful. If you want to defend yourself, God will step back and say, go ahead and defend yourself. But if you say, God defend me, and you just step back, God will defend you. It'll be one or the other. He's not going to do both. He's not going to try to defend you if you want to defend yourself. But you let him defend you, and you can watch great things happen. You'll see somebody's life get changed. Because God defends. Meekness, that ability just to step back and let God lead. And sometimes that means we're going to step out and do something. Sometimes it means that we're just going to sit, sit back and say, God, it's all yours. Then other times God will say, okay, now it's time for you to say something or do something. But you know the great thing is, when we do something, we go out and we love them. And we draw them in with love. We draw them in with gentleness. We, we saw the a preview of a movie over the, uh, yesterday or Thursday, Friday, two days ago. It's called War Room, and I recommend that if you get a chance to watch it, watch it. It's a, I think every Christian should watch War Room. But this one lady found out her husband was, was at least dating a girl, and she didn't know what, to what degree, and she was praying for him and showing him love. He found out about it, you're looking at her phone text messages between her and a friend, and she's serving him dinner, you know, and she's not being mean to him, not being harsh to him, and she puts two plates down, one in front of herself, one in front of him, and while her back's turned, he flips the plates around. <laughs> She gives him his drink, he flips the drinks around and he's watching her like, watching her, she takes bites like, she's trying to poison me, she's gonna kill me because of all this. God's defense, we love one another. We, care, we, we treat each other with love. The world doesn't understand it. Have you ever had somebody really treat you, you know you mistreated them really bad and they treat you with God's kindness and love? You know, for us as Christians, we kind of understand it to a degree, but the world looks at it like, What's wrong with this person? Are they setting me up? <laughs> you know, are they going to poison me sometime in the future because of this? You know, they're, they're trying to get my guard down. And yes, in one sense, we are trying to get their guard down to God so that God can reach them. That, that, that gentleness, that meekness that's out there. Temperance. Temperance is self-control. 
It's the virtue of one who masters the de desires and passions, temperance. In the old days, you used to hear temperance in, in relationship to alcohol, the choosing of not doing alcohol, but it's much deeper than just alcohol. It is that mastering of desires. We can't do it. We can't do it in our flesh. We might be able to do one or two things in our life and get, get some kind of mastery over it most of the time. But even then, if you've ever struggled real hard to master something, be careful. <laughs> because if you get proud about it, you know, I gave up <laughs> whatever it is, and I'm never going to fall into that area again, be careful. Be careful. Because usually as soon as you let your guard down, Satan's a pretty good master. He'll get you at your weakest time and make you fall usually where you think you're strongest. You've probably been there. Have you ever fell in a place that you thought you were so strong that you'd never fall in that area? I've been there. I've shared it with you. I've never dreamed in my lifetime that I'd ever go to a time when I wouldn't, wouldn't go to church every Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and any other time the doors were open. And I got to the place where I got into workaholism and slowly drifted away from the church and went for a couple years without going to church. And if you had told me when I was a teenager, there's going to be a time when you don't go to church for two years, I'd have laughed at you. I would have laughed at you and said, there is absolutely no way that that would ever happen to me. Be careful. Wherever you think you're so strong that you will never fall, you're going to let your guard down. You'll let your guard down and you'll fall in that area because your guard's not up. Wherever your guard is not up, you'll have trouble. Wherever you're not depending on God, you're going to have trouble or potential trouble. Because if you talk to a, anybody in the military in war, they get hurt mostly when they forget they're in battle. A police officer will get hurt when he forgets, how to, forgets the procedures for doing something and doesn't follow them and they end up getting hurt. We're in a war. We are in a war and Satan is a very strong enemy. When we forget that we're in war, He'll take us out. Temperance, that mastery, it comes from a fruit of the Spirit. God changing who we are into something else. When we have the fruit of the Spirit, it says, against such, there is no law. When the fruit of the Spirit is running in our hearts and living through us, we don't have to worry about the law. Because we're obeying the law. We're obeying God's laws because he's living through us. And people won't have to go up to you, well, you shall not lie. Well, that's fine. I'm, I'm obeying God. I'm being kind. I'm being gentle. I'm being loving. Uh, you shall not kill. Well, no, no, no problem there. God working through us will keep the law. Very important for us to understand. I can't keep the law. Number one, you know, I've shared with you, I don't, even, I don't even want to keep laws in my flesh. And I'm the one that I've told you, you know, as soon as somebody says you can't do something, I'm like, why not? Watch me. Especially if I don't see any real reason in it. You know, why not watch me? I'm going to go do it. I lived on a military base, and I, I crossed many fences I shouldn't have crossed. <laughs> Good thing I didn't get caught. <laughs> but, you know, going places, doing things, 
You know, how often do we push the lines? You know, the flesh wants to see how close can I get to this law and not break it? Teenagers, young adults going on dates, even older adults, I guess, going on dates, how close can I get without violating fornication? How close can I get? Instead of, how far can I stay away from it so I'm not even tempted? How far can I stay away from telling a lie? Or how close can I get to tell, you know, how close can I get to almost telling a lie but not quite telling it? You know, lawyers are real good. If you go to court and your lawyer will help you over your testimony to make sure you don't answer, and their, their advice always is, answer the question I asked and nothing more. Now, we promise to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but we're told by the lawyers, shut up and don't say anything. <laughs> You know, don't tell the whole truth because somebody, you know, you're going to look guilty if you tell the whole truth or, you know, and I don't know if you've ever dealt with a lawyer, but it's, that's what they do. They, they'll say, you know, no, you, you, you've said too much. You've said too much. You know, you've got to stop. And in Leviticus, God says that if we don't tell everything that we know about something, we've lied. God's definition of truth is, is along with the, 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 the oath of the court. Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And Satan says, well, just, just tell as much of the truth as you have to. Don't tell the whole truth. Somebody might get in trouble if you tell the whole truth. So don't tell the whole truth. Very critical. Whose camp are we going to live in? God's with the fruit of the Spirit? Or the flesh? With all the corruption of the flesh. We want to be very careful which we choose. And we want to remember that it is God's fruit. It comes out of us because we are attached to Jesus. He is life. He pours life back out of us in the fruit of the Spirit. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to look at your word. We ask that you help us to understand that everything is by your grace and that we need to produce fruit. Lord, and without you, we can do nothing. We can satisfy nothing. We can, we can do nothing that satisfies you without your grace, without your Spirit. And we just thank you for all of this. And Lord, we ask you to bless the food that we're going to follow the, after this service and that you grant us a great week. In Jesus' name, amen.